Welcome to Tantra Talks, where we make fintech sexy. On each episode, topics will range from news and updates about fintech, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, to algorithmic trading, mining, consumer adoption, and on occasion, we will get cosmic and explore how Bitcoin is ushering in an entirely new financial paradigm. This podcast is brought to you by Tantra Labs and hosted by Tantra CTO Russell LaCour and Creative Director Brecky Von Bitcoin. Please note, all opinions expressed by Brecky, Russell, or their guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Tantra Labs, Inc. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Brecky, Russell, or their guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Do you want to earn interest on your Bitcoin? Tantra Labs has the highest performing return on debt in Bitcoin. To find out more about how we have delivered the highest return in the market, Feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, Medium, or the contact link available in the show notes. Now back to the show. Folks, we are here for another very special episode of Tantra Talks. Uh, we're going to tentatively call this Market Watch, and this Market Watch is with none other than the legend and Tantra advisor and a very helpful soul to all the endeavors that we've uh, been putting out. None other than Joe McCann. How you doing, Joe? I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. We're happy to happy to have you. Oh, we also have Russell on board. Russell, say something for the folks at home. Hi, I'm here. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, so we're uh, we're living in uh, in difficult times these days. Coronavirus is everywhere. You you probably have it if you're listening to this right now. Maybe not. I don't want to. I don't want to make everyone go uh, go crazy. But um, the markets are acting. Well, I don't know. How, I don't know how they're acting, Joe. Why don't, that's why you're here. Why don't you tell us how the markets are acting? <laughs> Yeah, sure. So uh, first, let me preface this with I am just an armchair economist and trader. uh, So don't take any of this with any sort of like financial advice baked into it. But yeah, it's Tuesday, March 10th. Um, We saw yesterday, I think one of the biggest risk off moments in at least a decade. Um, And I think, you know, some of this is is to be expected. Uh, I was chatting with some of my my buddies that are in kind of the the hedge fund and macro economics space last week, and we were anticipating this this coming week. Um, you could see it in the credit markets that things were just starting to heat up, um, and credit tends to be kind of a leading indicator for what happens to equities traditionally when you have these types of of pullbacks. So um, I think overall the 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 combination of um, I'll try to be diplomatic here, a relatively incompetent response to managing uh, the coronavirus containment, not only necessarily the actual physical containment, but um, the the messaging of it, which is probably more important, to be totally honest, uh, at least as it relates to markets, uh, coupled with the um, price war that is now kicking off between... Um, MBS of Saudi Arabia and Putin of Russia. And so those two things combining um, over this past weekend uh, with cases rising throughout the United States, a number of cities and states claiming states of emergency, uh, you, you shouldn't have seen a, a surprise uh, with a, you know, a 7% drop in the S&P or whatever it was um, that we had when the market opened. In fact, uh, on um, Saturday, Sunday night, uh, US time, we saw crude actually the crude crude oil futures um, open up limit down uh, in the futures markets, um, and the reason that this has a bigger, I think, lasting ramification than just the price of oil. I think you know, <laughs> you can see um, President Trump. I think tweeted something yesterday about you know lower oil prices is lower gas prices is good for the consumer. <clears throat> While that is true, uh, I think that the, the bigger ramifications is that it's leading to a deflationary environment where deflationary def, some of the impacts of deflation are uh, prices go down for consumer goods, but that means businesses theoretically make less money. 
So it's not necessarily a good thing. Furthermore, when you had the price of oil going down as low as it did, uh, there are a lot of um, oil-based companies or companies that support the oil and gas industry that have issued corporate debt and bonds that are now likely going to be defaulted upon. And so that has a ripple effect into the broader economy. And I think this is, you know, why I mentioned the, the kind of the, the, the perfect storm of black swan events, the coronavirus coupled with the, the oil price war as why we had such a risk off environment yesterday is that you're seeing you're starting to see some of these ripple effects crack in some of these other markets, particularly the bond market, the high yield or investment grade markets. And that's not what you hear a lot of people talk about. They talk about the stock market. And and that's where I think you're going to see a lot more of the the damage going forward. So something we had a good call with uh, Nick Batia, who has a lot of experience in debt and credit markets and we were talking about the idea of these companies who have all these bonds issued, basically all the liquidity is dried up and they won't be able to find uh, liquidity to buy their bonds. And we talked about kind of the first companies that are going to need bailouts in this kind of environment. I uh, wanted to kind of get your opinion on it. We were talking basically the airliners are really at risk in an environment where the coronavirus really does stop consumers from flying around or traveling um, with the way the economy has been going. These companies are effectively not going to be able to turn a profit for a few months, potentially even longer. Do you think that we're going to see bailouts? Is that a possibility? And what does that look like to the overall market? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. Um, the short answer is I have no idea. The longer answer is that during the financial crisis in 2008, bailouts were primarily focused on the banks uh, and, uh, frankly, the notional dollar amount associated with credit default swaps that had been um, effectively issued. I think it was something on the north of like $63 trillion, some obscene amount of money. And there were a couple of reasons why those bailouts made sense. And I'll get to General Motors in a second, but the, the, the bank bailouts made sense because number one, you effectively had a revolving door between Goldman Sachs and the Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, so Hank Paulson was the Secretary of Treasury at the time. He's previously at Goldman Sachs. Two, Wall Street actually invented a number of these exotic you know, uh, financial instruments that yet who were the only people that could understand them? Wall Street. And so when you go talk to lawmakers and policymakers in Washington, D.C., the banks are basically saying, you have to backstop us on this because you have no idea of even understanding how this works, right? So, so that was one piece. The second piece, though, is that Obama was then in a, in a unique position where uh, bailing out General Motors was more of like a, I would, I would almost characterize it as a populist reaction to the bank bailouts. And, and I'm by no means an expert historically on what happened with the, the General Motors bailout. But in essence, that is an industry that is understood. But I think it was more of a political uh, positioning to kind of throw a bone to the folks, the working class, as opposed to just the, the Wall Street folks that frankly got an order of magnitude larger bailout. I think the difference now is, is you have in theory, a Republican or conservative uh, uh, president and administration that typically is against these types of things um, because it, it starts to border on the line of, of big government and, and socialization or privatization of, of industry. Um, however, Trump has run on a populist platform for quite some time. And so if his focus is getting reelected, which is frankly the goal of every U.S. politician, <laughs> I would not be surprised if they are going to start to float ideas around this. I think the big difference here between 2008 bank bailouts and 2020, call it airline industry, cruise industry, transportation industry in general, uh, yeah. even entertainment to some extent, is that those are known industries. We know what the airline industry does. They move people and freight around the world in airplanes. That's like, in a nutshell, what it is they do. Now, you could dig a little bit deeper and say that those businesses hedge 
you know, uh, jet fuel futures contracts. And they do some, excuse me, unique sort of financial engineering and wizardry around how they report earnings and, and profit and losses, et cetera. However, that's a known industry that the average Joe can actually understand. Whereas explaining a CDO squared tranche of triple B grade to someone and expecting them to understand, oh, well, yeah, that's an industry that deserves a bailout. It just doesn't, there's a big gap there. And I think that that's why there's probably a better chance that we see airlines actually uh, get some form of federal relief uh, because of the populist movement, because Trump actually wants to get reelected. Uh, and it's actually, frankly, something that's understandable. Got it. And we do you think as far as, and I'm, I'm not trying to pin you down to any opinions. I, I, all of this is speculative in nature. I think ultimately the idea is more like uh, the house of cards is, what is it? There's a crack in the armor, so to speak, yeah. of this economy or the house of cards effectively has been uh, shaking, if not blown over by this virus. I think um, it's a it's a really important thing to understand what are the first industries that are going to be affected, and then uh, at the same time, um, how does this affect us? And so, one of the first things that you had mentioned—I I don't know if we were recording yet—but uh, I said this on the call with Nick Batia is like I'm actually looking to buy right now, uh, as opposed to trying to get out of the market. It's more about reestablishing those positions that I believe in because the market itself isn't indicating like total economic recession and explosion, just more so a correcting um, that honestly is long overdue. Um, do you tend to agree or do you, are you just sitting in cash uh, waiting and you're going to wait this one out? Yeah. Great question. So yeah, I mean, I, I have a, I don't know, a kind of a, I don't know if it's unique, but it's, it's certainly uh, a position that I, I, I am yet to find a reason to break, uh, break from. And that is that number one, if you look at uh, the past decade um, of what has been kind of uh, leading the, the economic expansion in a lot of cases, and I've even publicly pointed to this, which is partially true, is you look at quantitative easing and the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet as propping up risk assets. So this, you know, in a low rate environment, people are chasing yield. You're not getting it from a savings account. You're not getting it from, you know, bonds. You're not getting it from CDs or something. So you go put money into riskier assets, real estate and, and the stock market. Both of those asset classes have done exceptionally well over the past 10, 11 years. But what a lot of people don't know, and, and I was informed by this uh, by a good friend of mine um, who uh, who has been in the hedge fund space for a while and in institutional investor space for a while, that pension fund flows are actually the have been the number one indicator of of stock market performance or risk asset performance. And so, if you if we kind of ex, you know, unpack that a bit, um, what you have are you know what you have is a, a trillions of dollars of what I'll call boomer money. And I don't mean that in the derogatory sense. I mean, that <laughs> literally, literally baby boomers have, have yeah. loads of capital, right? Parked right. in funds and uh, that, that frankly need to be allocated, right? And most of these pension funds, not all, but most of these pension funds are long only uh, and that guess what? That means they can only buy. They can't short. They can't get super risky with their investment. They can't get very much further out on the risk curve. They have to basically stick with you know stocks, bonds, mutual funds, municipal bonds, et cetera, those types of things, right? And so what we've seen is this this you know enormous amount of capital from boomers continues to enter enter risk. Uh, riskier assets and those risk markets ultimately become bid. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen this kind of this runaway in, in the stock market. Right. Secondarily, though, so that has not changed, right? You can have a 20, 25% drop in, say, the S&P, and that money is still sitting in those funds. They need to be right. allocated, they need to be deployed. Now, was the stock market due for correction? Absolutely. 2019 had a you know, 30, 33% return or something. 
Uh, we were getting very lofty with some of these these you know, <laughs> five companies that are trillion dollar market caps. I mean, we were getting yeah. to a point where it was like, okay, this is getting a little ridiculous in terms of yep. of, of the 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 kind of parabolic move of the stock market, which is something you never really want to see. And so, I guess fundamentally, until I see something like pension fund flows fundamentally change, it's hard for me to be like, yeah, I'm not going to be putting money back in these markets. How I'm currently positioned with my my you know myself my family we're mainly in cash in our retirement accounts and are looking to buy once we see some level of stabilization over the coming weeks and a lot of this if you if you look back at kind of what happens with China and yes you need to take China data with a massive grain of salt you know their stock market has completely recouped the losses that they had in January associated with the coronavirus. And so if China is a leading indicator for what theoretically could happen, you know, kind of like risk is on, let's, let's keep the party going because we kind of wrapped our arms around the containment strategy and the treatment strategy of coronavirus in the United States, similar to what China did, then in theory, you could see a, a rally back in the second quarter of this year to potentially new all-time highs. However... <laughs> There's a big difference there. Oh, Joe, Joe, that's you know that's not going to happen in the United States. We're not we're not handling this well. <laughs> yeah, the big difference is is that we don't live in a communist dictatorship where they can just shut down entire states and cities, and we don't have arguably, uh, again, diplomatically the the brightest uh, communicator as it relates to how to manage uh, this crisis. And so I think. Um, if we can start to actually get some clarity around the genuine uh, impact of coronavirus in terms of number of people infected, the, more, the actual mortality rate, the, the, the recovery rate, et cetera, those will be the things that will start to, I think, factor into um, the, the sort of uh, emotional psychology of uh, the market. And that was when you'll start to see those buying opportunities pop up. I think this is probably in Q2, but that's, again, being a bit optimistic on the containment and treatment strategy. Joe, Joe, are you not a patriot? These <laughs> tests, they're beautiful tests. I've seen them. I've taken them all. I passed. I got straight A's. Yes. They're beautiful tests, Joe. I'm sure. I'm sure they are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to go buy some more toilet paper. <laughs> Joe, I wanted to talk to you about your your idea behind the kink in the armor. Um, you know, the fact that something uh, I'm not going to call the coronavirus like not a big deal. Um, you know, it, it's effectively labeled as a pandemic. It's definitely stronger than the flu. Mortality rate seems very high. It's extremely infectious. All of these things, but for something like uh, this to cause this much of a reaction in the markets. Is it possible that that is a much, uh, we'll call it a darker sign? Uh, reason being like when I look at a market, um, I know the stock market tends to invest in quarters, but really we want to be looking at assets or at least investing in assets that operate over decades, right? And so we talked a lot yesterday with Nick Batia about like the 30-year yields and the 10-year yields and this idea of investing in assets that have a lower time preference. And so when the stock market is so biased on quarterly performance, is that not a bad thing? It, these kinds of reactions, are they not overall bad signs that the market is basically pricing in it's pricing itself improperly basically yeah so i think if i understand the question it has a little bit to do with you know uh low time frame investments something like 30 year bonds versus the sort of reactionary or short term uh focusing on you know the equities markets is that is that accurate yeah yeah yeah, so it's interesting is is that you know the 30 year I think actually dropped below 100 basis points yesterday at some point. Uh, it that's just un, un I honestly never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. Uh so yep. and that to happen at such a precipitous rate um is just shocking. Uh so 
I think that the, the thing though is that as we evaluate investments uh, and say like, you know, you want to think about re your retirement or your long-term investments, you got a long horizon of, of when you want to, to realize, you know, the, the directly the gains on these investments. Um, I don't necessarily think that that has too much to do with the way that the stock market is actually structured. So, so first, um, if you are an investor in uh, public equities, you know that they, by law, have these quarterly earnings that they have to actually um, publish and, and talk about and take questions and all of that. What has happened, though, is that the financialization of business has actually caused Wall Street and analysts and activist investors um, and even folks like Jack Welch, who's the former CEO of, of General Electric, uh, he actually pioneered a lot of this to just focus on growth at all costs and inflating the stock price and not actually building, quote unquote, real value. And so the reaction. So, so now let, let's take like that and understand, OK, quarterly earnings is really the focus. So a lot of CEOs just kind of they don't get the opportunity to think strategically long term. They don't get the opportunity to invest in things longer term. They've got to just focus on kind of like you know, appeasing the, the, the analysts and shareholders and activists, et cetera, so that they can actually hang on to their job. Because if not, the board will ultimately end up replacing said CEO and no one wants to lose their job. So if, so if you have that, and then you couple that with, with something that's near and dear to mine and uh, Russell's heart, quantitative trading and algorithmic trading with electronic markets, you basically have uh, the opportunity for the economics of fear and greed to feed into a market in a short-term manner, equities, that can also be traded at the speed of light. And so what we've witnessed, I think, over the past couple of weeks is, as a buddy of mine kind of put it, uh, uh, you know, uh, Probably could have used more savory terms, but he said he kind of saw it as like a quant gangbang on the short side, right? They basically <laughs> <laughs> they basically just decided to crush these markets as fast as they could. And that then subsequently triggered a lot more selling, which then subsequently triggered a lot more short selling. And if you notice a couple of weeks ago, you basically had what I what I think I tweeted or mentioned in my Telegram was like a flight to liquidity across every risk asset, period, every asset class, even even risk safe havens like gold, were just being yeah. sold off as a rush to liquidity because so many people were getting margin called out of their positions and had to raise capital. Um, there was discussion last week on uh, last Friday, I think on you know March 7th or 8th, whatever that was. Um, of the fourth largest uh, mark, one of the fourth largest market makers um, on the Chicago Board of uh, Trade was was effectively carried out of the pit because they had just blown up, uh, given what had happened with um, you know effectively making markets in VIX futures. So when these types of events happen, you're going to have these hardcore reactions get amplified through uh, the focus on, on frankly, short-termism, and then also the ability to capitalize and pummel these markets at the speed of light. As that relates to things like, say, a 30-year bond, I actually use that more as a measure of how the market is, is evaluating growth, actual GDP. So for example, if the two-year is trading at 20 basis points, which I think it got down to yesterday, the market is basically saying, we're going to grow at about 20 bips for the next two years. That, that's kind of how I treat the bond market. It's it's arguably not a perfect science that I'm demonstrating and <laughs> not suggesting it. But the point is, is that if you're if the long-term approach is more about growth in general, you probably want to have some semblance and, and association with GDP growth. And if the GDP if GDP goes flat or grows at 20, 30, 40 bips a quarter or a year then you're likely going to be able to hedge that by just being in government bonds. And so I, the, the, the sell-off and the, uh, the, the, excuse me, the, the, not the sell-off, <laughs> the rally in the bond market, which ultimately depressed bond yields, 
um, is to me a no-brainer reaction to the fact that you're getting less opportunity for growth in equities markets short term because GDP will probably be flat in the second quarter. And instead, why not at least guarantee that yield in, in bonds? So I want to ask one last question about the market, and then I want to talk about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin's been relatively correlated, which has been interesting. Um, do you think we're going to negative rates? Great question. Uh, so yesterday, I think for the first time ever, and you'll have to fact check me on this one, but I believe for the first time ever, we had the Fed futures, um, Fed funds futures market actually price in a 15% chance of negative rates, I think in July. Uh, pretty phenomenal. Um, here's, here's the thing. So I... And, I, you know, again, it's theory. I'm probably wrong. I, I'm pretty sure Europe is already in a recession or they will absolutely be in a recession some point this year. Uh, I think Australia has a good chance of that. Um, you know, Southeast Asia certainly has a, chance, a, a very strong chance of that. Russia has a strong chance of that. I would say the United States has a very, very strong chance of a recession, but we might be able to skirt it. Um, and if we can, then you know we we have a better chance at like I think longer term supporting some of uh, uh, the quantitative easing and policy measures that the Federal Reserve has continued to put in place, even if they drop rates to zero. Um, if, however, uh, Fed funds futures rates start to really price in negative rates and the Fed needs to react. A lot of people will say, well, what are the bullets that they have left in the chamber if they've dropped rates to zero? And uh, one of the things that I don't think a lot of people are aware of is that the Fed could effectively fix something like the 10-year yield to, say, 100 basis points. And uh, by doing that, um, in theory, they're providing sort of additional, uh, you know, firepower or support, if you will, to, to kind of fend off against a recession. Will they do that? I have no idea. Has it been done before? Yes, I believe Japan did this. Not sure it really worked out well for them. So there are other <laughs> there are other measures they can take. I think, in fact, Rosengreen over the past weekend mentioned that the Fed will even accommodate to uh, expand the types of assets that they will purchase. And what is implied from that is that they could literally start buying stocks on the open market or other risky assets. So I think there are going to be ways that the Fed. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, 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 wait. You can't drop the Fed might start expanding its balance <laughs> sheet to the stock market without saying that is a fucking terrifying thing. <laughs> if, don't you think if the, if the federal government starts buying private equities, is, the, is that not one of the worst things that could happen? Well, I mean, it depends on your perspective, right? I mean, if you are long public equities and other, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, okay, here's the thing, yeah. right? Like, you know, <laughs> here's the thing, right? So, you know, and, and and we have to get a little bit philosophical here because I think yeah, totally. what is the hilarity of the modern, you know, sort of economic machine is that this all of this shit is completely made up. We have completely made up all of this stuff. Like we as human beings believe that like we are owed some interest rate of some thing that we just all believe, right? So like my point right. is that, is it terrifying? I guess if, if that terrifies you, is it a good thing? I guess if there's a reason for you to see it as a good thing. I just, for me, I'm just looking at it going like, this is all just made up. So at the end of the day, like, it's it's public sentiment. It's behavioral economics. It's it's the the fear and the the economics of fear and greed in markets. And how are you as kind of a human being positioning yourself to either uh, accumulate wealth or protect wealth? And I don't mean that in in a sort of one percenter way. I mean it like, hey, you've you know, probably built some portfolio, or you've got some assets, or you've got some value that you want to protect. So are you protecting? And or are you growing it? So it's just, I think terrifying might be the wrong word. Because I, I, I want to talk about this more deeply. It's, 
it would be a very interesting thing for the United States government, you know, Trump gets on and, and Brecky, maybe you can do this impression after I say it, but you know, he does his weekly cast and he says, we're going to buy Tesla stock this week. And Tesla had a great quarter. We really believe in them. We're going to be purchasing Tesla stock and putting it on the balance sheet of the United States government. That to me seems very um, esoteric in nature because now you have a, a private equity that the federal government is getting involved with the U.S. tax dollars. And when you look at the power of a government, they can effectively make it, just like with what happened with GM and the bank bailouts. Of course, I guess it's obviously already happened, happening when you mention those things. But now Tesla never fails. The, the power of the U.S. government makes it so that any problem you run into, Elon, you know what? We've got you. You know, we've, we've got all this money. We can just print more of it. What do you need? What What did you fuck up this time? We'll make We'll make it right. It, it, to me, that future. You know, I'm I'm a capitalist. I'm all for free markets. I just think that that is actually more Big Brother than anything, which is why I I would refer to it as terrifying. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh... I think to, to, to kind of comment or, or answer the question or just have a discussion around this, I'll bring up, I'll bring up one of my favorite traders and philosophers of all time, which is uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb. And one of the things that he talks about is the idea of letting things fail, letting things crash is actually incredibly important for the, the long-term health and sustainability of a process or system or market or ecosystem, you know. And what we have witnessed, what we are witnessing, I should say right now, today, past you know, week and a half, two weeks, is the result of about, call it 11 years of what the lab would, uh, would, would identify or, or label as dampening volatility. You're effectively padding the, the nicks and cuts uh, and effectively pushing it out as far as you can. Right. So, so here's an example that I give to people to, to understand what I mean by dampening volatility or what I believe Taleb means by dampening volatility. So let's say from the moment that you're born, any cold, any little nick or scratch that you get, little tiny illness, let's say you treat it, you treat it immediately with antibiotics. And so what happens, right? You're, you, you treat the cold or the, or the sickness and you get better quickly. But what's the problem? You're basically pushing out the, quote, volatility or the ability for your body to, to build the antibodies to fight off this and a cold in the future. And so then what happens as you push out that volatility, you keep dampening that volatility. What ends up happening is you get some, you know, <laughs> this is very topical coronavirus or you get some sort of like, you know, stronger illness that your body is fundamentally unprepared to fight off. And what happens? You blow up, aka you die, you get wickedly sick, like that, right? We're seeing the exact same things in the market today. So with the Fed's accommodative policies over the past, call it 11 years, coupled with the extreme, which, which leads to very low rates, which causes folks to then invest in riskier assets. But whenever there is a bump in the road, the Fed will dampen the volatility by being accommodative from a quantitative easing standpoint or balance sheet expansion standpoint. They're pushing that risk out. And guess what happens when you push that risk out? It's called tail risk. <laughs> that tail risk explodes. And what we've seen over the past two weeks is tail risk explosion. We've seen the result of 11 years of volatility being dampened and dulled to the point that it got further out on the tail of volatility and just blew up over the past, you know, call it a couple of weeks. So my, my, uh, my belief is, is that um, by say propping up Tesla stock, like what you described or any public equity for that matter is dampening volatility. You're only introducing long-term tail risk that cannot be quantified except for the type of reaction that we see in the market today which my personal belief and philosophy is, is that you should allow things to crash and burn. You should allow things to you know, fail or to experience 
kind of uh, rough patches because um, it's like the philosopher Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And if we don't Im embody that in our markets today, then we're going to continue, continue to have these, these tail risk explosive events. Yeah. And I, I actually pulled up a chart of the VIX while you were saying that. It's, it's up 300% in the last month. 300%. That, like, talk about tail risk. I, I, it's just insane to actually see this kind of volatility get realized in the stock market. I was, I, I brought it up to you before the call too. I, I was, you know, seeing all the volatility last week. This is the first time in my uh, trading lifetime that I've ever seen the market open up, circuit break, seven percent down like that. I've never seen it pre-market, and I was I was trading very actively when we almost went to you know quote unquote nuclear war with North Korea. The market didn't even act like this. Um, it's just just absolutely insane to watch it happen. So that so just on that point, right? So with the the potential for war with North Korea, why didn't the market react the way it did? Because it wasn't a market driven event, right? And so this 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 sort of um, you know tail risk is driven by this tail risk explosive event is driven by uncertainty like yes there's some uncertainty if north korea is going to go to war with us right but like right. we kind of know that it's not going to happen or if it, <laughs> like, no i'm just saying like it, like yeah, scary, yeah. Right? like if 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 um kim jong-un wants to launch a nuke he no longer has the threat of launching a nuke Right. So like you lose all the power once you launch the nuke because you're just you don't have the power of the threat. And so the market can can box in that uncertainty to a very simple, you know, game theory set of mechanics. But coronavirus, absolutely no way to box in the uncertainty around this. And I think that's why you see the, the explosive tail risk event. And then furthermore, let's also factor in that the, 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 the stock market has been on an absolute tear and was due for a correction. But it just got, you know, overextended in terms of the quant gangbang and all of these other things that yeah. basically prices further down. Well, and that, to add on to your point, too, I think uh, the data isn't as available with something like the coronavirus because you can't necessarily trust all the data sources and the mortality rate and all the tests aren't there. So there's so much more uncertainty surrounding the effects of this virus versus Will they launch or not launch a nuclear bomb? Yeah. Well, and, and there's another, it's a great point. I think uh, myself and a, a friend of mine, Balaji Srinivasan, has actually been kind of on the forefront of this virus from back in January when people were thinking he was a bit loony for raising the alarm bells. Turns out he was right. Um, there's a challenge around the data, the source of data, the truth associated with that data, and then being able to make dis decisions on that. And if, if we can't get to a point of having some, you know, uncoercible, uh, tamper-proof source of truth for this kind of stuff, it becomes extremely difficult to even know what is right and what is wrong, right? Right. Absolutely. So I'm going to take this opportunity because I want to spend the last, um, the end of the podcast to tie this into Bitcoin and tie it into Bitcoin's price and the reaction to this. Uh, we talked a lot uh, with Nick about this idea of, uh, for a long time, a lot of people have looked at Bitcoin as the hedge to events like this. And then we see a major correction in the stock market and Bitcoin basically correct the same way. And for us to see this going into the halving of 2020, where you know people were expecting $20,000 Bitcoin by now or whatever uh, people were expecting, yet we just saw 10 plus percent correction in the price. Um, what do you think about that? Is it more we don't have enough data to support those theories and this is kind of proof of that, that Bitcoin is still a risk asset and people just want liquidity when uncertainty comes and Bitcoin is not that certain risk off asset yet? Yeah, great question. So I, I think first and foremost, um, and if you follow me on Twitter or in my Telegram chat, you know that I am <laughs> not a fan of narratives and conspiracy theories and, and people, you know, human beings naturally want to understand why something did something. Why did, <laughs> it, why did it go down, right? 
Yeah, so I had, yeah, it was the coronavirus. That's why. You know? Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, so, <laughs> so I had to discuss this with with um, no one fucking knows, right? Like no one knows, and, and anybody that's going to tell you that they know why the price went up or down is full of shit, and they just are either trying to build a following on Twitter or generate traffic for their website. Like those are the only reasons that people will pontificate without putting skin in the game behind why something went up or down. However, what I will say in regards to, frankly, what happened just this past weekend with Bitcoin um, is that, you know, believe it or not, Bitcoin is, has been for quite some time now um, uh, a, a tradable asset by, you know, hedge funds and, and some, you know, uh, you know, quant shops that, that do multi-asset or multi-strategy uh, investments. And... When those types of firms uh, get engaged in, you say, a multi-strat where crypto or Bitcoin is a piece of that or a portion of that, um, and they start to get margin called, well, guess what they're going to do? They're going to raise capital anywhere they can. So let, let's take this past weekend, for example. On Saturday, excuse me, on Friday, you basically had, according to the OPEC minister from Iran, who is the longest standing OPEC member of any of the current OPEC members or representatives, uh, said it's the worst meeting in the history he's ever been to as a part of OPEC, right? And that was because Russia balked at the, the price plan and how to adjust relative to the coronavirus impact and the price of oil. The next day, MBS from Saudi Arabia announces we're going to increase supply by like 12 million barrels a day or something, effectively flood the world with oil. And every energy trader on the planet knows what that means. That means you're opening up limit down on Sunday night futures and Monday morning, it's going to get even worse. So on Saturday, if you take Saturday, I should, I should preface this with like Pacific standard time where, where we are on the West coast of the United States, Saturday Look at what started to happen to the price of Bitcoin. It, it not only from a technical standpoint topped out at a at like kind of a top of a, a channel and was rejected pretty strongly at 9200, but you then also started to have you saw alts sell off dramatically. You saw Ethereum sell off dramatically. You saw everything sell off dramatically. And why was why was that? Now there could be an app, you know, there could be a technical reason. Like I said, you top a channel, you want to reverse back to the bottom of the channel around 7700, which is effectively what happened. However, it was exacerbated because of the weekend. And because trader oil traders or quant traders or macro traders that are that you know have, are running multi-strat or are running a book where crypto makes up a portion of it, well guess what's the only thing they can trade on Saturday? Crypto. So if they're looking at it saying, I got to raise cash because I'm going to get called out of my position Sunday night, or I need to be able to raise cash to trade positions Sunday night, they're the only thing that they can sell is crypto. And so again, I, I, I'm not suggesting that the, this is the reason that, you know, right. but it's, it played into it. Like there, there's 100% somewhere, somewhere, someone, somewhere in the world that thought went through their head and they opened up their Coinbase Pro account and they just fucking sold. Exactly. And so uh, a buddy of mine, um, Travis uh, from Ikigai, posted a chart, I think, in Telegram the other day that showed a tick-by-tick -tick, uh, overlay of e-mini futures, so S&P 500, uh, crude oil futures, and Bitcoin when the, um, when the futures market opened on Sunday night Pacific time. And tick for tick, it was exactly the same. This, this happened again previously, like two weeks ago, when we saw the first big drop in the global markets. Tick for tick, the S&P and uh, um, Bitcoin were, neck, were tick for tick. Uh, on Sunday night, it was oil, S&P and Bitcoin. And so again, it's not, I'm not suggesting that the, the only reason is because macro traders and quant traders from hedge funds were trying to raise cash. But it's really hard to look at that and go, if tick for tick, when the futures markets <laughs> actually, they're identical in terms of the trading, uh, the price action, it's, it's hard to make a case to say, you know, yeah, this is just basically a flight to liquidity. People are raising capital because, because they have to. Now, even two weeks ago, gold was one of those assets that typically is a risk, you know, safe haven, risk off. It was sold off, right? It, it subsequently rallied back. 
we saw that now uh, Sunday night, we didn't see, we actually saw a gold rally a bit, but since then it has ultimately thus sold off as well. And so I guess what I'm getting to is, is that, you know, correlation is not causation. I'm a firm believer that no one can actually tell you exactly the reason why something happened, but you can infer a lot from what's happening at like a global level. Uh, you know, I, I think the way I positioned it in one of my telegram chats was like, look, when people talk about, you know, minor capacity and, and tether printing and, you know, all this other hokey bullshit as to why price <laughs> way. Like that's yeah. bullshit. Like that's nobody knows the, the, uh, somebody said it was plus token dumping on the, like, come on, man, like get over yourself that none of that stuff is true. And if it is, you have no way of proving it. So, so stop pontificating about it. Instead, when you have two black swan events, coronavirus and a freaking oil price war, yeah, I would say that probably is going to influence price. Like, I don't know. Call me crazy, but that's something different than tether printing, right? 100%. And, and so let's go deeper in this thought process because I really like – I think that these data points are very important to understanding Bitcoin as it defines its asset class because I, we still don't know and I think a lot of people have assumed that they do know. But this, to me, the data basically suggests we have a risk-on asset that's corollary to the S&P 500, which basically means if we see a global economic recession, as of right now, the data does not point to Bitcoin being a safe haven asset towards that, which I think a lot of the community has always said, you know, the world, the, ec the economy blows up, everybody's buying Bitcoin. But as far as these events point to, Fuck no. People are going straight to cash. They're going to sit in liquid safe assets. And right now, that is not Bitcoin. Bitcoin has not defined that, which I think these events have kind of hinted that, you know, again, kink in the armor, so to speak. Very, very interesting data points. Yeah, very, I, mean, very I, I completely agree. And like, I think part here's part of the challenge, right? I think one, if you're active in the Bitcoin community, uh, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin maximalists, uh, remind me of fundamentalists for re for religion, and you actually need them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, so, yeah. So it's not a bad thing. If you look at religions that have survived and been and stayed, you know, frankly, around, there is a portion of their members that are fundamentalists. They just it's just core to the the the, the sanctity and the foundation of a religion to maintain its existence is you have to have people that are just die fucking hard about that religion, right? We see this with Bitcoin maximalists. There is a core set of just die hard fundamentalists for Bitcoin. And, and uh, unfortunately, some of the narratives that are espoused by fundamentalists, and I don't mean this necessarily just for Bitcoin, but in general, tend not to be true. And, and ultimately, a lot of people don't believe it. And, and so the challenge is not... Um, but Joe, Nick uh, Taleb does believe it. You, you know, you call us uh, fundamentalists. I would prefer to call us the intransigent minority. <laughs> so, right. so I think we're saying the same thing. I'm not trying to say it in a derogatory way. <laughs> I'm basically saying like Bitcoin as a philosophy can't survive without fundamentalists. It, it, it's not possible. Like yeah. Christianity cannot survive without fundamentalists. Islam cannot survive without fundamentalists. And, and it's just proven time and again that when you have a movement like this, you, it requires a foundation of fundamentalists. So I, I want to be very clear. It's not meant to be derogatory. It's meant to be actually supportive of long-term of the long-term sustainability of Bitcoin. However, fundamentalists will tend to speak and espouse things that don't necessarily work out to be true. And I think what we're seeing is, is one, the uh, Bitcoin as a, as an, as a risk-off safe haven asset is still not available to the majority of institutional investors or what I would consider uh, uh, sort of your laggards or your 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 late majority, if you will, along the crossing the chasm there, uh, people, uh, cohorts of people that are going to be actually moving money towards Bitcoin as a safe haven asset. Couple that with the fact that Bitcoin has been the most volatile asset to trade over the past decade, certainly <laughs> up until a couple of weeks ago. Guess what quants and traders trade? They want to trade vol. They don't want to trade something that moves 
50 basis points a day. They want to move trade something that moves five to 10% a day. And so as more and more of those people get involved with something like Bitcoin, they're going to ultimately depress the price. I think longer term, you'd be silly not to have some exposure to Bitcoin as a safe haven risk off asset in general. Um, but we're not seeing that today. And I don't think that's just because I don't think that I don't think philosophically it's wrong. I just think the means to a reality are just still not there. And I think you know, there's a lot of work being done like Swan Bitcoin with getting more people to gift Bitcoin and, and get people sort of off of zero. Like there those and those efforts are going to take a long time before it starts to get into people's heads of like, oh, when shit hits the fan, I can just go park my cash in Bitcoin because I can effectively take that money anywhere and it's good anywhere I go. I mean, that's a, in, a, in a phase where Bitcoin is undergoing monetization, you know, like it, it's an information asymmetry thing. Like I, I use Bitcoin as my safe haven. Um, you know, there are others like me who are doing so, but, you know, we our time for my time frame on that is 30 years. Like I'm not touching it. Um, so well, I think was, that's a great point. That, that was effectively what I was going to touch on next too. It's just because that's where we're headed doesn't mean that's where we are today. And so what the data suggests based on the most recent movements, the corollary price action, even though the fundamentalists might preach Bitcoin as a safe haven, that might not be for another decade, two decades, three decades. As of right now, data suggests we have a risk on volatile asset that is experimental in nature and therefore risky. And I think anyone who believes it's a safe haven is not necessarily lying to themselves, but they need to have a 30-year time frame. And they need to believe that that code is going to be the best code for the next 30 years and nothing else is going to come out better or else they're just, you're kidding yourself. It, we're still very... It's experimental, and I'm, you know, I'm a firm believer. I would consider myself a fundamentalist in a lot of ways, but at the same time, nothing is perfect. And I think a lot of a lot of people look at Satoshi and Bitcoin, and they think like, you know, this uh, super intelligent species from the future created the code that will save the world, and it's just not true. You know, even the the original V1 Bitcoin source code had errors in the code. There's like, there's things that didn't work, all kinds of issues that we're uncovering. And it's like, yeah, no, it's an experiment. Experiments are not risk off. I think, I think, you know, uh, to, to, to kind of uh, support what, what you're saying and, and say it in a different way is, is that there's a difference between an investment and a trade. And I think the the trade of Bitcoin has been trading vol and and up to the point, and I know I rest in peace my Twitter mentions after saying this, but Bitcoin <laughs> Bitcoin's killer feature thus far has frankly been speculation and uh, and and it, it's empirically proven. <laughs> Just look at the look at vol, look at annualized vol for Bitcoin. That's speculation. like that is hardcore speculation. And so that is a trade. Right. That is a trade. That is not a long term bet on self-sovereignty and a decentralized, unpegged currency and kind of the future of money or the future of savings. Right. And so I think distinguishing between a trade and an investment uh, and an investment, by the way, doesn't necessarily have to be financial. It could be philosophical. It could be spiritual. Right. But, but the point being is like a trade is a tactical thing that. You are trying to either, you know, uh, you're trying to effectively extract more value out of it than you're putting into it. That's how I would characterize a trade. And then an investment is something that you fundamentally believe in longer term and are willing to, you know, uh, take the noise out of the equation, which could be the, you know, the speculative and volatile nature of Bitcoin. And this is one of the things that I that I tell all the traders in my chat is like. Trade what you see, not what you believe. Because if you believe something, it's an investment. If you trade something, it's because it's it's speculation. And and I think that that distinctive point between 
whether Bitcoin is a trade for you or whether it's an investment is a, is a key thing to, to hone in on. I absolutely agree. I, I think, what, what was your trade what you see, not what you believe? That's beautiful. That, that's, um, you know, the essence of quantitative trading, right? When we talk about using math and statistics to define a trade, nothing's speculative there. It's purely empirical data that defines what you're doing. And I think that's what um, the world of quantitative trading and even Bitcoin is the availability of data and the mathematical computation of that data is a very beautiful thing that we're seeing happen. But even to this, to the point that we're, I think we're making here, it's very hard to draw conclusions with such a small data set. And so it, it is a very interesting time that we live in. I'm very excited to have this uh, new strong data point that points to Bitcoin being risk on. Uh, I'm excited to see what kind of uh, research stems from that idea. Alrighty, folks. Um, I think we're getting to that point where we want to we want to finish up a little bit. There's one thing I wanted to point out, though, that I think is very important. We were talking about uh, you know the bugs in Bitcoin's original code base and all that, and how Bitcoin is an experiment, which it is. But a lot of people forget that the U.S. dollar is also an experiment, and I would argue it has far more bugs in the code base because there is no code base in the U.S. dollar. <laughs> So the fiat experiment, uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, all right. Now, Joe, I don't, I don't think we've told you what we do at the end of our podcast yet, but we play a game called Bitcoin or Shitcoin. And uh, th so the way this game works, there's, uh, there's no winners or losers in it. I am going to read off a, uh, a list of things, and then uh, whatever pops into your head, you're going to tell us whether they fit into the ethos of Bitcoin or shitcoin. And if you want to you know, give an exp explanation, you can, or you can just say Bitcoin or shitcoin. All right. So Joe, are you ready? I am ready. Let's do it. All right. The first one on the list, Microsoft. Bitcoin. All right. How about Microsoft uh, 20 years ago? Ooh, you guys really put me on the spot here. Uh, <laughs> you can decline to answer. It's all right. Yeah, so so yes, 20 years ago, shitcoin. And the reason I would say that is, is that uh, Microsoft, frankly, has undergone a fundamental uh, culture change, which is very difficult, if, ne if not next to impossible to pull off at, at, a, at a size of an organization the size of Microsoft. And one of the reasons that I joined about six months ago was that uh, under Satya Nadella as a new CEO, there, there's a focus more on um, experimentation, creativity, inclusivity, uh, just thinking differently about um, technology and, and its impact on the world. And, you know, you, you can, you can see a lot of the, the reports and, and sort of, um, videos and interviews of Satya Nadella and, and the, the kind of the, the skeptic or the, the jaded person or cynic in, in someone would say, oh, it's just, you know, public PR speak. But I can, I can tell you anecdotally from, from working there, the place actually lives the values that they espouse. Um, I think I just tweeted today that uh, the president um, of Microsoft pointed out that they are going to maintain the hourly wages of uh, hourly workers that support uh, Microsoft. There's 4,500 employees in the Redmond area that support Microsoft at the hourly level. Like, you know, if you're just a crummy corporation that cares only about money and shareholders, like you don't care about hourly workers. And I think that's one of the reasons why I would say, you know, 20 years ago, it was just a very different culture. So I'd give it the shitcoin label. But, but today I think um, it embodies some of the values that uh, Bitcoin actually, believe it or not, embodies. Love it. And uh, for folks at home who don't know this, Microsoft is actually building on Bitcoin with something called Aeon, I believe. It's a decentralized identity solution. So that's something pretty exciting to look forward to. Um, 
All right, next on the list, Node.js. <laughs> uh, no, Node.js is definitely not a shit coin. I got I to be <laughs> in the Bitcoin bucket. Uh, yes, um, I'm a big fan. I actually, uh, most recently over this weekend, was building a Telegram bot for uh, folks that could get information, up-to-date statistics and news on the coronavirus. And it's just so easy to build applications with Node. Um, I, I'm still a massive, massive fan. Obviously, I'm biased as the former co-founder and CEO of Node Source, the Node.js company. Um, but I still think uh, you know the the impact that JavaScript, full stack JavaScript, can have um, on the world is is yet to be seen. Love it. All right, I've got a tough one for you. Oh boy, DeFi. Ooh, um, man. So get easier after this one. Don't worry. Okay. So so here <laughs> I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Bitcoin, and the reason I say that is um, as a as a as a technologist and as a trader, uh, I have. I'm yet to see anything more innovative uh, happening in in the space in general uh, as it relates to finance, technology, trading. Uh, one of the ways, that, you know, one of the things that I described to people when I was working at a hedge fund a couple of years ago was, um, uh, and then we were working specifically on cryptocurrencies, is that, look, the, the, the fascinating thing about crypto and DeFi particularly is that you have a clash of cultures. You have, on the one hand, uh, technologists that in most cases know nothing about trading or markets or arbitrage, right? And then on the other hand, you have traders and, and market financial people that typically have no business programming or no, no skills on how to program. Uh, and now you clash these two cultures together. And what stems from it are, you know, the, the type of like the, the concept of flash loans in DeFi right now is try explaining that to a bank. Like they would think you're absolutely insane. But that, that level of innovation to me is something that is extremely valuable, I think, long term, not only for DeFi, but ultimately for Bitcoin. Because if there are if there's a culture of innovation around cryptocurrency and around DeFi, this can only, I think, uh, blo help blossom and ultimately support um, the Bitcoin community and the broader sort of uh, trust minimized systems community, blockchain community, whatever you want to call it. And that's one of the reasons why I got I got to label it Bitcoin. Love it. All right. Yeah, and I would also say that uh, you know wherever you stand on on DeFi, Bitcoin is DeFi. So anyway, all right. Next on the list, we have U.S. Treasuries. <laughs> Shit coin. <laughs> Ooh, Nick Bati yesterday said uh, Bitcoin. So, that's funny. All right, how about oil futures? Yeah, I think I think part of the reason I got to give U.S. Treasuries the shitcoin label is that they are pegged to the ultimate shitcoin, which is the U.S. dollar. So I, I you know, I can't. I, I got to believe that if uh, if they were innovating beyond something as the worst form of fiat out there, uh, I'd give it a better mark. But I got to go with shitcoin. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, so oil futures. <laughs> uh oil futures ooh man really depends on where you're sitting right now um <laughs> I, barrels of oil sitting in your garage or <laughs> oil futures <laughs> barrel futures is a shit coin oil futures is bitcoin how about that <laughs> all right you got three more uh the coronavirus oh god uh gotta be a shit coin who could possibly say it's it's anything. <laughs> I, think, I think if I did, if I was to take the, the Bitcoin position, which I'm absolutely not, I would say I think the one benefit that we'll get hopefully from the coronavirus is it crashes the U.S. healthcare system and it comes back stronger. Ooh, very fair. Pretty nice. Very fair. All right. Um, next is a Chinese delicacy. Sorry, I'm going to butcher the name known as bat soup. Oh man, uh, I'm gonna go with Bitcoin because obviously, who wouldn't love to have a, a nice bat <laughs> soup at this point, right? <laughs> All right, uh, last one on the list: toilet paper as a store of value. Got to go with Bitcoin. I mean, if you look at prices <laughs> for toilet paper at this point worldwide, wow! I wish I could have been long that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Man, disagreeing left and right with Nick Batia. He called it a, it a shit coin, but that's just, you know, because it's toilet paper. Almost so. too obvious to call it shit coin, in my opinion. <laughs> Uh, agreed. All right, folks, that's the end of uh, Bitcoin or shitcoin for today. And an amazing, what I thought was an amazing pod with uh, the legendary Joe McCann. Gents, do you have anything else you want to close out with? And Joe, uh, where can we find you? And uh, well, actually, you know what? I'll, I'll drop everything in the show notes. So sure. Last word. Um, uh, I would just say uh, hang in there, folks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Russell, anything for the folks at home? I just wanted to say thank you to Joe. I know your life's really busy right now. Um, I don't know if I can mention this or not, but congratulations. I know you're currently pregnant. Um, We can cut that out if you don't want it to be in there, but that's amazing. I I hope that that experience changes your life and helps you see the world in a different way. Um, I'm Really thankful again for you to get on this podcast and talk with us today. I think um, especially as the events happening unfold more and more, we'll, we'll talk about this. Um, and so I, I, hopefully we can get you on another pod within the next few weeks once yeah, uh, some crazier shit transpires, which it probably will. <laughs> yeah, man, this was a lot of fun. And thanks for the kind words. Um, yeah, very excited uh, with, uh, with Baby on the way. Uh, an odd time to be having a child on the way with the zombie apocalypse on the horizon, <laughs> but uh, yeah, really excited. Absolutely happy to do a podcast again. Just make sure there's some volatility in the markets. Absolutely. <laughs> Will do, Joe. Thank you for joining us. All right. See you Thanks, guys. Thanks, Joe. enjoyed the show please subscribe consider leaving us a positive review and sharing us with your friends and if you'd like to earn interest on your bitcoin tantra labs has the highest performing return on debt in bitcoin to find out more about how we have delivered the highest return in the market feel free to reach out to us via twitter medium or the contact link available in the show notes thanks for listening